So hi, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me on your podcast. I'm really excited to come on board and to share with you. Hello, and welcome to Obehi Podcast. I'm your host, Obehi Ewafo, and I strongly believe that everyone has a story to share. Now let's get started with this episode. A little bit about who I am and what I do. Uh, so my name is Keisha Klinkscale, and I am originally from New Orleans, Louisiana, in the United States. Um, I have a pretty substantial background in nonprofit and uh, NGO management and engagement, and I'm just uh, happy to be here to to talk a little bit about what I do and what I'm passionate about. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for that, Keisha. Now, um, you were born in Louisiana, is that correct? That's correct. All right. Can you tell me a bit about uh, your early childhood? We want to know more about your story. Help me understand that. Sure. So, um, yeah, I was born in New Orleans, Louisiana, which is one of the greatest cities on earth, as far as I'm concerned. Um, My parents are originally also from uh, New Orleans. Um, I have a younger brother uh, who is doing... Um, incredibly uh, amazing things in the venture capital space. But um, we grew up pretty, um, pretty normal, um, lower middle class uh, family, uh, attended uh, private school up until um, high school. Um, and then I went to uh, my undergrad. I actually stayed in New Orleans. Um, I attended Tulane University, I studied African studies and in uh, sports medicine. And so, yeah, I mean, so my, my childhood was pretty good. Uh, enjoyed uh, growing up in New Orleans. It's a pretty amazing uh, city with some, um, some of the most authentic uh, cultural experiences you could uh, possibly imagine. But yeah, mm-hmm. pretty good childhood. Thank you for that. Yeah, I understand that the New Orleans, there is a, a lot of, there is a huge African-American uh, community there. Is that correct? Can you say something about that? Yeah, so the African-American community in uh, New Orleans is incredibly diverse, incredibly rich, uh, so much uh, authenticity and so much uh, culture um, that's also blended with other uh, cultures throughout the diaspora, um, including uh, Native American Indians as, uh, as well as uh, French. Uh, there's a huge French influence on New Orleans uh, one of the most amazing subcultures is actually the uh, Mardi Gras Indians. Um, this is a really um, incredible story in which uh, the Native Americans, uh, way back during these times of slavery, actually uh, provided a lot of support, guidance, and help to um, um, African slaves and ultimately African Americans as they fought against the slavery system and in tribute as an honor and recognition for the support of the Native American um, community that lived there, the uh, African-American community began to do what's called masking in that they created these uh, incredibly elaborate um, costumes that were very much so similar to the uh, featherings that the Native Americans wore. Um, And so this sort of um, honoring and paying homage to the Native Americans has evolved over uh, the uh, past couple hundred years. Um, And that, um, um, uh, what is the word? That tradition um, continues to this very day in which we have communities within the African-American community um, that uh, represents various tribes of uh, Indian tribes who helped um, African slaves either escape and or rebel against the slavery system. So that's one of the most unique things about New Orleans as it relates to the African-American community. Mm, That's very interesting. Now, how do you pass on those knowledge uh, to the younger generation so that it is not Mm -hmm. forgotten? Because in the diaspora community, uh, it is important that we continue to tell our stories so we, yes. we continuously reenact it so we know where we are coming from and what has been the passes. Let me understand yeah. that. I am so glad that you asked that question because um, back when the uh, tradition first started, 
the way in which it was conveyed to the younger generations was completely oral. Um, stories were told, children were involved in the creation of the costumes, um, which I'd like to pause right here for a moment just to explain to you how elaborate that process is. So these costumes can weigh anywhere from, you know, 100 to 200 pounds, including the head garbs and sort of the, um, the shields that are made. They're made completely from hand, uh, by hand with feathers and beads. And the patterns of these costumes are just extraordinary. And so the way in which the, uh, the tradition is passed down from generation one, it was orally, right? So the families of the various tribes would share with the children what they were doing. And oftentimes the children would be a part of the costume making process. But then the other part is actually hands-on and that's the beating of these costumes. The costumes typically take anywhere from nine months to a year to actually make. And once they're worn, if they're not sort of preserved in some sort of museum of some sort, they used to actually undo the costumes and use featherings and the beads for the next year, but they would make a completely different suit. Um, so yeah, so that's how it was passed down. And of course, as techno technology became more uh, um, integrated into society, um, these traditions were then recorded um, at some point, uh, you know, on. Uh, in books, as well as, you know, on video. And, and now it's just a prolific sort of um, um, way that the information is just is conveyed all over social media now. But yeah, it was completely oral um, with um, hands-on experience is how it was, uh, it was originally sort of conveyed from one generation to the next. All right. Now, another thing I'm sort of curious about uh, trying to understand is that uh, the Louisiana of your time, when you were still a young girl, and today mm -hmm. you are uh, a full-grown adult. Uh, you have had a lot of experiences. What kind of what kind of changes do you see? What kind of uh, mm -hmm. reminiscence do you have of the past in relation to where we are today, 2022? Yeah. So the most amazing thing about New Orleans is that the culture is in fact rich, and it is um, it, it continues. Um, the issue, though occurred or one of the issues that occurred is when uh, Hurricane Katrina happened um, several several years ago. Um, and what ended up happening, the hurricane displaced many thousands of, of individuals. And as you can imagine, people who have limited resources or um, access to, to resources, um, those folks who don't, you know, were impacted the most. And of course, those tend to be communities of color, right? So no matter what we're talking about, whether it's um, healthcare or, or um, natural disasters, any type of disastrous issue that impacts a community of color, it is exacerbated more so because of the communities of color. Um, and it's unfortunate, but in, you know, in growing up in New Orleans, um, what I what what I see now is that there are people um, who are still trying to regain their footing from a hurricane that happened, you know, so 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 long ago. And so um, I think that that's one of the you know uh, concerns and the things that's sort of heartbreaking as it relates to um, disasters, right? Because when they happen they severely impact communities with greatest needs and those communities typically are communities of color i think uh, george bush was the president at the time that uh, hurricane katrina happened and there were a lot of news about it at the time i know i know sometimes all this can easily be politicized and and mm -hmm. all of that so you mean uh today how many years ago now people are still suffering from the effect of that hurricane is that what you're saying yeah, so, you know, anytime you have a, a disaster like that that happens, if you have means and if you have resources, your recovery is going to be quicker. It's going to be more efficient. Will you be um, sort of um, dis, uh, discombobulated a little bit? Yeah, but 
But if you have resources and access to resources, then that time is limited. For people who do not have access to resources, that time frame is extended um, far beyond those who do. So, you know, even though um, the hurricane was, you know, such a long time ago, you still have people that are still trying to rebound and parts of the community, you know, that still trying to, to rebound. And what I was going to say was, you know, as it relates to the Mardi Gras Indian um, culture and, and traditions, so many of those costumes that were made and the materials that were used to make them were destroyed in the storm. And so, you know, if you have folks that are, are trying to, or who were heavily invested in that community before the storm, um, it, you know, after the storm, it's like their first priority, of course, were the basic needs, food, clothing, shelter, transportation, um, economic um, stability, and trying to get back on their feet. Um, the priority, even though it's critically important, may not have been to, you know, resurrect or re-engage with that cultural tradition. And so even though the tradition is back and it's vibrant and people and communities are still engaging with it, 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 it wasn't or it's not to the extent that it was before the storm, if that makes sense. Sorry that I'm going to be asking you a few things related to the hurricane. Um, yes, because this is a story. This is something that have happened. We're not like trying to event something here. Because it affects the community and it still people still continue to suffer from it uh, several years later, uh, it is important for me to ask you a few things, maybe personally. So okay. at the time of the hurricane, where were you? When did you first realize that something was happening? So believe it or not, um, I moved away from New Orleans in 1999. Uh, and, and, and I've been living in... Um, Atlanta. So I moved away in 99. I lived in South Africa for about a year. And when I returned from the continent, I moved to um, Atlanta. And so I've been here for over 20 or you know, 22 or just about 22 years. And so when Hurricane Katrina happened, I was actually working for the American Red Cross, which part of the work that they do is disaster relief. Um, and so Interestingly enough, I'll never forget that day, the day after the storm, um, I went, went into work and there were just hundreds and hundreds of people, my people from New Orleans, standing outside of the Red Cross seeking help. They had evacuated from uh, New Orleans and many of them did not have um, family in Atlanta. Um, and they just needed shelter. And so working for, you know, an organization that provides international disaster relief, like the Red Cross, um, it, it hit closer to home to me than I, 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 than I ever would have expected, right? It was, it was like, okay, so not only do you work for one of the world's largest disaster relief agencies, but like your family, um, extended and people who I don't know, but are just fellow New Orleanians were standing at our front door at the Red Cross seeking help. So it was doubly um, important for me to be present um, and to do everything that I could to make sure that people got what they need. Mm -hmm. All right, did people really got what they need? How, what was the response? I wanted to speak to me about that uh, briefly. Mm -hmm. So what the Red Cross does, it's a phenomenal organization. Um, it's typically the first agency or nonprofit organization that shows up um, on the scene of a disaster. And so there are immediate needs that are addressed. So uh, shelter, first and foremost, clothing, um, food, and then, you know, that's what's sort of addressed immediately. And then there's an assessment of what is further needed beyond sort of the first few days after a disaster. Oftentimes it's more extended stay if um, individuals' homes have been severely impacted by a disaster. Um, sometimes it's transportation, sometimes it's food, sometimes it's 
a connection to governmental resources that can help with the long-term uh, recovery. And so that's sort of the type of support that the Red Cross provided. Um, it did so after Katrina in a, in a monumental way, but a lot of the um, issues that we experienced um, was because we didn't understand at the time just how um, massive the response needs were going to be. So, you know, there were just um, so many lessons learned in the days following Katrina that the needs were far greater than what the organization had the capacity to address at that moment. It took a little bit of time to sort of um, ramp up those resources and then put in place a mechanism to distribute those resources equitably. Thank you so much for those sharing about uh, Hurricane Katrina and uh, the community, the African diaspora community, in this case, the African-American community uh, in Louisiana and in other parts mm -hmm. of the US. And now let's uh, come back to you again. How do you describe the kind of work that you do, your passion yeah. and your work? Let, let's spend some time there. Sure. So um, let me start with um, after I graduated from college, uh, many of my friends, they knew exactly what they wanted to do with their lives. Um, many of them went on to medical school and law school and business school. Some of them went to physical therapy school, but I had no idea what I wanted. All I knew was that I had gotten this degree in African studies and I had also studied sports medicine. And so I decided to um, sort of merge those two topics and integrate women in development into that. And so I said, okay, I am going to write a proposal um, uh, talking about women in development um, and asking someone to fund me to go and do research on South African women athletes and how they were continuing to be marginalized since the fall of apartheid. Um, and so I sent this, uh, this proposal, actually it was like a one page letter to a hundred companies in the US. Or some of them were multinational, but they were all based, had a presence in the US. And I asked them to go, uh, to, or to fund me to go and do this really important study. And so I heard back from about four of those companies. Uh, two of them basically said that they didn't do that type of work one of them said that they didn't do that type of funding, um, but good luck. And one of them said, we don't do this type of funding, but there's a university in Atlanta that might be interested in your work. And that university was Clark Atlanta University in Atlanta. And so I sent uh, Clark Atlanta a letter uh, similar to the one that I'd sent to these hundred companies. And so Clark was like, yeah, you know what? I think that we might be interested in um, learning more about, about this. And so what they ended up doing was funding me to go to South Africa to conduct this research on South African women athletes. While I was there, I also had an opportunity to work for a small NGO called Border Institute of Primary Healthcare. The organization was based in a little town called Quigney, East London. Um, and the work that they did was HIV AIDS awareness and prevention. Doing that work ignited something in me that sort of directed my path professionally. At that time, I had determined that I, want to spend, that I wanted to spend the rest of my life uh, professionally working in the space to improve the lives of others. And so when I got back to the States, that's the course that I set out to do, uh, I set out on. And so I began my career in nonprofit uh, management and NGO engagement. Um, so I work for some of the largest nonprofits on the globe. Uh, as I mentioned, American Red Cross, I spent time there. I spent time also with the American Cancer Society. I work for Boys and Girls Club of America. And then I've also spent time working with small family foundations. Um, and so in all of that work, um, it all sort of points to this um, passion of mine to help make people's lives better, um, even if I never get to meet these people um, 
ever, uh, as long as I live. I want to make sure that people have access to resources, that people are able to improve their qualities of lives, um, that they are able to do so with uh, dignity, with hope, and with enthusiasm. Um, and yeah, and so that sort of um, has been my journey. Now, your decision to go to South Africa to study the, the women, the situation of the women there, does it have to do with your study of Af to your African study, which is where you major in the university? Absolutely. I spent four years at Tulane University completely immersed in um, the academia side of uh, the diaspora. And as a woman, um, you know, there have always been challenges uh, for us. We've always had to address, you know, disparities uh, in regards to our voice and um, um, our importance and our relevance in any and every space. Um, but in the diaspora and across the diaspora, that was even much, you know, was even more significant. Um, and so, yeah, so my studies absolutely uh, led, led me to this intent desire to address and to, you know, raise awareness about uh, the uh, marginalization of women, uh, particularly in sports, as well as, um, um, you know, beyond the, um, the system of apartheid. Uh, well, the question of apartheid, maybe we might not really need to open that argument uh, today because, uh, yeah, you have both legs and hands and all of it uh, because um, this is a system that existed when the world was already civilized, if we want to put it like that, no? Okay. That we see a very uh, few minority of people who come and imprison the entire, entire population. Uh, they were armed, they have every resources to be able to do that. Uh, we have this big giant country like the United States um, and no doing anything about it because they didn't see to, to feel concerned about it, no? And uh, mm. so a lot of things happened there uh, during the time. So it appeared as if the violence, the oppression was actually sanctioned by Western government because they could have done something okay. if they wanted to, but they choose not to. They joined the part of the oppression and the people just yeah. suffered. They died, a lot of people died. And that was really very horrible a situation in Africa. That could Absolutely. have been avoided by the bigger power, but they choose not to. That Absolutely. is not a good thing. Yeah. Well, the, well, the interesting thing about that, and you know, we see those types of choices being made even today, right? And it all goes back to what is the value proposition of the people involved? What is what are the value propositions for those who could actually make change? And if that value proposition does not rise to the need of what these larger um, first world countries um, believe are valuable, then they won't engage. They won't step in. They won't um, uh, try to um, alleviate the pain and suffering of people um, from around the globe because there isn't a direct um, uh, interest, right? But then you have agencies like the UN Foundation who try to raise awareness about these issues and try to you know, make larger uh, countries um, and, and first world countries sort of understand what the needs are and how everything is really all interconnected. Sometimes those issues um, receive attention and resources and a lot of times, unfortunately, they don't. A lot of people died. A lot of people died. A lot of people were mutilated, massacred. What really was needed for the United Nations to take action what really was needed for bigger player like the United States to take action to say we stand for justice? Anyway, again, justice. Um, <laughs> like I often say in this podcast, we can never expect the West to give justice in, in terms of Africa. It's not going to happen. Like Doctor Ben, we said they will give you just this. So we are not going to get justice from there. So that okay. And that is that is what it is. All right, that that is fine. We're not going to make some blame today. That that is, that is okay. Now, uh, you did African studies. Uh, you have never been to Africa. You have been in US. In your preparation to go to Africa, what was your impression? What was your understanding? What did you think you were going to find in Africa? 
So what I knew was that South Africa was a incredibly developed nation, right? Uh, Perception-wise in the United States, you know, people have to understand that images of the continent were always presented in a particular way, as if the continent, number one, was one country, uh, two, that there was no industrialization, and three, that the people who lived on the continent um, were not as um, technologically savvy or academically savvy. Um, and I knew that all of those um, stereotypes were wrong, right? And when I got to South Africa, I was it, it was confirmed, right? So there are parts of the country um, that are rural, right? But that rings true for the United States. There are parts of the country that are incredibly industrialized, right? And when I stepped foot in Johannesburg, I felt like I was in New York City. When I visited uh, Cape Town, I felt like I was in San Francisco. When I spent time in Durban, I felt like I was in Atlanta. Uh, when I spent time, I lived actually in Quigney, East London, and that town reminded me of the of, of Alabama during the height of the civil rights movement. And so there were all of these um, similarities that endeared me to South Africa, right? That reminded me of home. And then there were experiences that I felt and that I witnessed that reminded me of what it must have been like growing up during the Jim Crow era in the United States. Right. When we're talking about the levels of um, racial injustices, um, the uh, amount of discrimination and segregation that was almost parallel, if not exactly parallel to what it was like being in, uh, in, in the South during the Jim Crow era and the eras of uh, segregation. Um, that's what it was like when I was there in South Africa in 1998, 1999. So it was jarring to feel what it must have felt like for my parents and my grandparents and my great-grandparents as they struggled and fought against segregation because the people of South Africa were doing the exact same thing but it was in 1998, not 1964. Um, and then it was in another, on an, in another part of the world. Um, and so I often wrote back home, uh, emailed and letters to my family, particularly my mom and my grandmother, telling them that I now know what they must have felt you know, when they were told that they couldn't drink from a particular water fountain or they couldn't go into a particular store because I was experiencing those exact same things until people found out or learned or heard my accent and realized that I was uh, from America. Once that happened, it was a complete 180 shift in engagement, right? It was like, okay, so you're not African, you are American, and we believe that you could help us. So it was really interesting. It was really interesting. That's cool. That's cool. All right. Now, you went there um, with the research, right, to study something. Tell me about, tell me something more about those research. What did you find? How did you approach the people? What were you looking for in terms of um, evidence? Evidence yes. of what were you looking for? So what I was looking for was to find out if things were better, different, or worse for women who were interested in pursuing sports, um, whether it was on the collegiate or professional level. And so I spent a lot of time at the University of KwaZulu-Natal um, in their sports department, talking to students, uh, women students who were also athletes. And, you know, what we found, again, or what I found, 
was the similarities and how you know men's sports were the dominant sports those were the sports that received the most um financial support the most um media coverage the most excitement um and women's sports while they did exist they didn't receive half as much of the attention or the finances or the resources um to promote that um and so you know even though it wasn't um uh, you know, I wasn't in the, in the United States. It it was it was a parallel, right? Um, speaking to a lot of, of women athletes who were just as capable and talented and strong and skilled, you know, as their male counterpart athletes, they just were not receiving the same amount of attention. All right. Now, uh, looking at the diaspora community in a game, because that is where you are part of. No? You are in Louisiana. You are an American, yes, but you are a um, different kind of American. No? Um, <laughs> that we look at ourselves as a group of people no? that have a sort of, um, we have a common destiny, if we want to put it like that. It doesn't matter wherever you might find yourself on the face of the earth, as long as uh, we are the sons and daughters of Africa, we look ourselves uh, uh, from this light. Now, mm -hmm. looking at community service, how important is yeah. it today? Because you know, before you were talking of um, uh, the situation in Louisiana, that uh, many years after the after the hurricane, hurricane Katrina, people still feel the impact. Uh, mm -hmm. Of course, that is calling on certain responsibility on the part of both the government and the people that are living there. So I'm looking at the role of some individual to participate, whether mm -hmm. in the name of NGO, organizing ourselves, being able to look at how we can maybe attempt to address the things, the problems that have fed us. So that's why I'm mm -hmm. asking you where you see the role of community service within the yeah. African diaspora community. Let me. Yeah, so, so community service is not a monolithic thing. Community service has to be a comprehensive group of not just individuals, not just neighborhoods, not just NGOs or nonprofits, not just the government, not just private sector or for-profit companies. It literally has to be a comprehensive, collaborative strategy in which people um, sort of buy into a common denominator. And whatever that common denominator is, applying all of everyone's sort of subject matter expertise, as well as resources to address those issues, right? And so you, you find um, many success stories around the world in which, you know, those types of collaborations actually have worked and have improved communities, you know. But there's 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 no shortage of communities that need to be improved. So it almost seems like, you know, very little work is getting done. But as long as there's sort of this idea um, that this collective of group, this collective group sort of um, can uh, embrace, change will happen, even though it may seem microscopic, um, even though it may seem disjointed, um, it can happen. But it has to be sort of this really comprehensive collaboration of individuals who have a diverse set of uh, skills and subject matter expertise and resources to address the issues. Yeah, right. Thank you so much for that, the Kisha. Uh, now, I believe so much in what you're saying that a, a collaborative, comprehensive approach to addressing the problem can actually find a solution to it. Because in the diaspora, we are, we are a force that can be reckoned with. We are more than 500 million people, if I'm not mistaken, maybe more, maybe less. So if we were to organize ourselves, there is no army anywhere in the world that can stand us if we were to organize ourselves. But if we don't okay. organize ourselves, even the least country in the world can do anything to that more than 500 million people. So it's a question of this comprehensive, collaborative organization. Yeah. Now, in 2013, that was when I started the research that led to um, 
our training platform that is A Classes Training Academy, Content Academy, and this podcast. Uh, the idea was to find out about the presence of Africans in Northern Italy because I just come to Italy then. I spent a few years. I was asking myself, but who are the first people that came here? What did they do? What can mm. I learn from them? Because the story is very important now in that right. if you don't tell your story, you risk leaving that chance to somebody else to tell it for you. And you are okay. going to have to pray that that person must have your interests at heart. Otherwise, that is a huge risk to you. All right. So what I found is that within the community, whether you are looking at Italy or in some other parts of the world, the US or UK or in Canada, where you have a huge African diaspora community, the problem is the same. So mm -hmm. the approach is going to be more or less about the same. Either within mm -hmm. this collaborative, comprehensive approach to address the problem. It's not that the people really are missing. It's not like there is no education at all. It's not that there are people, the people do not know anything at all. But what I am saying, I'm suggesting is that why don't we collaborate more? Why don't we uh, put in a lot of knowledge that we already have at the service of the community? I'm not saying for free. That is not what I mean. But that our community should be the centerpiece of our agenda that we should plan to own the businesses in the community, yeah. train the people so that they can control the community. Yeah. How do we go about this? So that when something happens, mm -hmm. of course, we will always ask for the help of the general government. You are mm -hmm. in UK, ask for the help of the UK government, for example. Uh, you are in US, ask for the help of the federal government. But beside that, the community can have something of their own. To sort of intervene. That is where I'm going. How could we yeah. do that? So I'm going to answer this question with a statement, right? And that statement is, united we stand, divided we fall, right? United we stand, divided we fall. And when you have a community that is united, meaning that there is a common denominator that we all have embraced a set of core values that we all believe in, uh, sort of a strategy that we have all decided to work towards, we're united, right? And you can actually affect change. But when you have competing priorities, particularly in communities where resources are limited, there is no interest, or I shouldn't say that there's no interest there, the interest is buried underneath what the immediate most pressing needs are. So if your immediate most pressing needs are as a family to shelter your family, to feed your family, to clothe your family, um, community organizing might be a priority, but it's not your top priority, right? Your top priority is meeting your very basic needs. And that's sort of, um, is aligned with uh, the uh, Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs, right? And so you, as an individual, you wanna address those first. But if you don't have, if you have a community that has uh, sort of uh, uh, a diverse group of, of individuals who don't have the sort of same needs, you're not going to create sort of a unified approach to addressing what the real issues are. It's gonna be fragmented. And that's what you see around the world. You see fragmentations of work that is being done to address the needs of some, but not the needs of all, right? And so as long as there is this sort of um, inequality in, in, in terms of access to resources, we're going to struggle with this. We're not, it's not like we can't address it because it is being addressed. It's just being addressed in sort of a fragmented way. Mm -hmm. All right, now let's say we are looking for a solution. And mm -hmm. now we know finally that uh, our fragmented approach cannot save us, no? Mm -hmm. That if we are only looking for our little pockets of interest, that, will, that is what is going to always remain, pockets of interest. Pocket of mm -hmm. interest cannot save a people. Mm -hmm. To save a people, we need massive uh, approach Geared towards a collective objective, 
like Marcus Garvey will do, for example. Look at that yeah. was an individual. That was a man. Yeah. Governized <laughs> the entire population together, built a shipping yeah. line. Yes. Do you know what that means at the time? How many right. shipping lines today are owned by Africans or African diaspora? How many? I don't think that there is one, is there? So this is what we are talking about. How yeah. do we, what do we need to be able to understand that our only salvation is to have a common interest where everybody is rallying around? We can't yeah. say that we, haven't, we, ha we don't have any reason for that. Look at yeah. Israel, for example. Yeah. A small country in the Middle East building nuclear weapons. And yeah. guess what is that justification? That there are people so far in the hands of the of the Nazi of Nazi Germany. They don't yeah. want it to ever happen again. Six That's million right. people. That was a lot. But yes. we have tens and twenties and even not hundreds of millions of Africans that are being massacred. Is that yeah. not enough to say it should never happen again? Let's do everything we can to save ourselves. Yes. Do we have a reason to do this? Yes, we do. I think ideally um, there, there are things that we can rally around. But again, because of the fragmentation of what those needs are, uh, it's going to be difficult, not impossible, but difficult. Um, the, the other thing about it is that, you know, there is sort of the identifying of what the needs are for the diaspora and then the acknowledgement of those needs from allies, right? So, because we can't do it alone, right? Um we can't do it alone. When you give the example of Israel, you have the majority of the world supporting Israel. Majority of the world supporting Israel. That is not the case for the diaspora. Right? And so, um, and so that's sort of what, what I'm thinking, you know, there has to be a unified agenda, but then there also has to be the engagement with allies. And with that engagement with allies, they have to understand that the um, addressing sort of the issues for the diaspora is not only morally right, but it can actually benefit all. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> because look at, okay, that it will benefit or it is true. Mm -hmm. Look, for example, how many computer gadgets that are sold in Africa. Yeah. That is a market opportunity, for example. If you just yeah. keep the people poor, they cannot afford to pay anything. That is a That's loss right. to you that is a producer. So right. this globalized economy, we must make an effort, of course, talking at the international level now, we must make yeah. an effort to make sure that people can afford the right. tools of the age. That's right. If they, if they yeah. only live on mere one dollar, they cannot afford it. So you are losing, I am losing. Now, coming That's back right. to the African diaspora again, I don't yeah. know if it's just because we don't have enough ally. I know we do need ally and we do need people to support us. But... Do we really have we really done enough and so that what is lacking is the ally? Because I don't think a lot of people actually like Marcus Garvey at this time. There were some people yeah. who didn't like him. I'm talking of people outside the even people within Africa, sometimes they didn't like him very much. Uh, of course, everybody is a subject to their education that they receive, no? So mm. he of course within the limit, he did that, meaning that if we have enough believing, enough reorientation of our mind. We can yeah. do a lot. So right. I, I think, <laughs> yes, it, please. It's, it, it's interesting because you not only are you, are, you know, are you talking about people who, um, from an from an academic standpoint, you know, because Marcus Garvey, in addition to all of the other great things, he was an incredible academician. So you've got individuals who are also human. 
right? And with the human experience come human emotions, many of which include pride um, and not wanting to sort of align um, with someone who isn't necessarily from where they are from, right? So, it, so there, so that creates this, you know, uh, division, if you will, and not being able to galvanize people around one cause. It's like um, not everybody wants to follow, you know, uh, someone who is American but of African descent, right? Because there is distrust with the, um, you know, with America, right? So, you know, it, it's, uh, it's, it's a really, um, it's simple, but it's also super complex, right? The simplicity of it is that when we help one, we help all, right? That's the simplicity of it. But the complexity of it is that people don't necessarily have trust for individuals who they have seen or or nations who they have seen harm and hurt others, right? So. <laughs> right. All right, I get that. We're going to look for a way to build the trust because that is the only way we are going to survive. And yeah. I was reading um, this book by the Israeli writer, uh, The 21 Lessons of the 21st Century. That is a okay. very interesting book uh, where uh, the, the writer was saying that um, uh, uh, what actually differentiates the human being from the rest of the other animal, comparing human being to the apes, is the ability to tell story, to negotiate. Look yes. at currency, for example. Uh, why, mm -hmm. why would uh, people organize themselves and go to Africa and dig up a hole on the ground and they give people some worthless uh, paper they call dollars? Who, who said? How can? How many? How many dollar can you put inside that hole to replenish it? Actually, yeah. it, it doesn't make any sense in a logical sense of it, but we have a way of putting value in those paper so that that paper yeah. is now worth more than the hole that we dig on the land in the Niger Delta, polluting it, killing people and all of that. So yeah. I believe we need to master our story. We need to be the champion of yes. it instead of letting others do that for us. And if we manage to do that, we'll be able to go far. Anyway, so the, the, yeah. the question actually I want to ask you is, um, what do you think it can be the right approach to build the, the, the diaspora together as a united body so that we can mm. uh, fight for a common interest. I believe it doesn't solve only the problem of the diaspora, but it also solve the problem of where they are coming from, which is Mother Africa. Yes. Wow, that is a heavy question. Um, and I, I do want to sort of touch on what you mentioned about the importance of your story, um, because you don't, or if we don't tell our story, to your point, someone will tell it for us, and it will they will tell it from their perspective. Um, they will tell it in a way that sort of um, elevates them and or it gives them sort of a um, the most um, uh, or the greatest sort of uh, presence in our story. And so I think that it is wildly important um, for us to share our stories. And I see that happening um, so much more, particularly with the, uh, uh, the, the development and the, the technologies of, um, of the internet. You know, we're doing a better job of telling our stories. But in terms of unifying, I think that that actually requires a few things, right? It requires sort of a um, assessment of themes, right? So if you hear, you know, the United States people of, uh, of, of color talking about, you know, their greatness, right? And then you hear people in the Caribbean talking about their greatness and hopes and aspirations. And it sounds a lot like the greatness and the hopes and aspirations of people of color in the United States. And it sounds a lot like the aspiration, hopes, and desires of the people of color in Europe and on the continent. And so then you start developing or you start seeing these patterns and themes. And once you know you start start seeing these patterns and themes, then those things become the common denominator that communities across the globe or communities of color across the, the globe 
can sort of embrace and galvanize around and then act upon. And then that act of acting upon, of course, will then generate and, and result in impact. So I know that that sort of seems a little bit abstract, but I think that that's how um, change can actually be um, um, made on a global on a global perspective, but it has to start with the identification of commonalities and themes and patterns that we're all sort of trying to strive towards. Um, and I think that the next, the, the younger generations um, are starting to see that when you look at the uh, the kids who are involved in a, uh, wanting to talk about um, uh, climate change and, um, and sort of uh, governmental um, um, brutalities and injustices, you see children, you know, younger generations sort of speaking to that. Um, and I think that that's, that's part of the work that we've been doing um, up until this very point, right? Trying to create awareness about the things that are important to us. So I think it's just gonna be a continuous process um, and a continuous chasing of, um, of a better life for not just me, but for all. <laughs> How can people connect with you, those who might want to work with you and uh, want to connect with you? Because we're also here for the connection. Yeah, so I am um, certainly on uh, LinkedIn at KT Clinkscale, um, as well as on uh, social media, um, uh, Facebook and Instagram, same handle. Now, what would be your final thought very briefly to conclude the conversation that we have had today? Maybe a message or anything you want to leave the yeah. people with? What I'd love to leave the people with is a spark of optimism. Um, I think that there has been a tremendous amount of work that has been done um, to raise awareness about issues that are impacting uh, the diaspora. Um, and there's been a great deal of achievements and accomplishments that we ought to celebrate. Um, and then going forward, you know, there's so much work to do. And one of the things that I'm super excited about is again, sort of the energy and the expectations and the demands of the next generation to make the world a better place. And so if we can support them in their efforts while also continuing to advance our own work, um, things will get better. Won't be perfect, but things will certainly get better. Thank you so much. I like the optimism. That is very important for me. Thank you so much. I appreciate the time. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Appreciate you so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you subscribe so you never miss any of our future episodes. Rate and review Obehead podcast and share with your friends who might need it. I remain Obehead Thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you in the next episode.